Let's talk about digital identity, the podcast connecting identity and business. I am your host, Oscar Santolaya. Hello, and thank you for joining a new episode of Let's Talk About Digital Identity. Single sign-on is one thing that today we take it for granted. So it's even hard for us to remember when was the first time we have used it. Today we'll go a bit deeper into that and in which direction single sign-on is going. And for that, we have a special guest who is Kit Uber, VP at UB Secure. Hello, Kit. Hey, Oscar. Thank you for joining us for the second time. So you've been two years ago. Two years ago, you've been before talking about mergers and acquisitions. So happy to have you back here. It's a pleasure. Thank you for the invite to come back. Yeah, nice to have you, Keith. And we'd like to hear a few things about yourself so you can tell us about your journey to the world leader identity. Yeah, so my entry into the world of identity probably began around the year 2000 when I had just moved to Finland from Australia and I was working for a telco provider who was in the around the dot-com boom era had been acquiring lots of small businesses, lots of startups. They had their own projects and all of these had many different types of identity systems and login systems. And my uh, introduction to that process was my job was to evaluate different solutions to that problem and, and ultimately uh, take part in a commercial pilot to uh, implement a product to solve that problem. Excellent. And I already can imagine that a single sign-on had some some role on that. Just guessing, but uh, yeah, single sign-on is something that I was really trying to remember when was the wor- wor- first time that I have used and it's quite difficult because it has been coming in different, in different flavors, I would say. Probably the first time I used was in one of my first jobs. When, you know, you go to the office, people used to go to the office every day and today is not, not for everyone at least. And then you sit down, you log in to your computer, you log into the domain and, and then suddenly you can access some of the internal applications without logging in again. So that's, is one of the ways. And then later it come, what we see more often today is the, the web singles and on, right? So several applications. So in order to start with the basics, how you define single sign-on in a nutshell? Yeah, single sign-on is maybe a, a more technical term that the industry understands, but for the, the end users, they don't really understand what the single sign-on means. But they, they do understand that they don't want to have to sign in again and again to different parts of the same website or different sections of the same company. So single sign-on is the ability to sign on once using any form, and use that same session information across many different services. For the end user, that, that's great. That means that's one less username and password or many, many less username and passwords or many less authentication methods for the user to, to manage. And you mentioned the, the internet or the web-based applications as a, as a kind of thing that sort of came along. So it, a long time ago, we all used to have our desktop machines and we would have had client-based applications, and we'd even have to sign into those. And early on, there were different solutions for remembering and replaying the usernames and passwords across different fat client applications. And that's what we call enterprise single sign-on. That's very much faded away as um, the world has moved to web browser-based applications where 
people are spending most of their time in a browser or signing into applications based on, on browser-based technologies. Mm-hmm. Thinking of we as normal users, or like majority of users, we are using without noticing, right? You might ask people what is single sign-on and well, like, not sure, or maybe they try to find meaning from, from the name itself, but it's everywhere. So if you can tell us a bit more what are the, how people are using single sign-on, SSO in practice, so what are the, how many ways, what are the scenarios, how many scenarios, or just mention a, a few of the most common ones. Yeah, so single sign-on in, in essence is the, the reduction in the number of times that you have to sign in to, to different services. So instead of signing in to different parts of the same website that might be based on different technologies, you only have to sign in once. And then when you transfer to a different section of the website or a different application within an organization, you're already logged in. Your, your name appears and your information appears. And a lot of what's happening, all the technology behind that is happening behind the scenes. It's uh, mainly invisible to the user. And that sometimes makes demonstrating single sign-on, for example, quite a boring demo because you're actually removing (laughs) a lot of the the things which you don't want to see. And the end result is you see nothing. So the best type of single sign-on is where the user doesn't notice it. But there are other advantages. For example, in order to create an account, you only have to create that account once. So the user registration process is also simplified when there's single sign-on. Without single sign-on, you would have to have a registration process for every individual user application, or at least some, some way to authorize your account to be used on other applications. So that makes it easier. And then password reset or credential management is then simplified because instead of having to reset your password in different services, you can reset your password in one spot and it it's the same password used for many different services. Yeah, indeed, that illustrates the advantages that, as you also said, is the user don't notice is, well, in a way, invisible once it's, it's set up. So going deeper into what are the nuts and bolts of single sign-on, I'm sure there are many technicalities behind, but what are the main standards that make single sign-on possible? Yeah, so single sign-on doesn't, have to be done using standards, but of course, standards simplify the implementation process and simplify the management of the solution. And there's basically two main standards which are in use today. And the older standard is called SAML2. And this is an XML-based standard, a way to transfer information about the user and the login session between different services using public key-based technology. And in more recent years, and the more, more modern technology is what we call OpenID Connect, which is based on OAuth 2. Different workflows use different parts of those two standards. And that's a JSON-based, REST JSON-based protocol. It implements most of the same use cases, most of the same user flows. But of course, as technology has developed and new use cases have come, now OpenID Connect is what we would call the gold standard. Even though it's the, the gold standard, there's still a lot of software systems and products which are based on the SAML 2 standard. So to truly implement SSO in a as wide a range of target applications as possible, the best thing is to have a, a solution that supports multiple standards. And there's ways to bridge between these two standards so that some applications can use SAML 2 and other applications will use OpenID Connect. And you don't have to do a lot of your own development work because if the products and the, and the servers support those standards, it's uh, pretty much plug and play. 
Yeah, indeed. As you said, two main standards, even though there are other ways, but two main standards is SAML2 and OpenID Connect. Yeah, even though there are two main standards, there are a lot of um, software that can make things happen. We know, because from experience, I've been talking with customers, organizations in different sizes, and even though we feel as users that single sign-on is almost ubiquitous, there are still many organizations, companies that don't have single sign-on or don't have single sign-on at least for all the applications. So it's common that there might be in an organization, let's say, 20 applications and a portion of them, let's say four of them, which have some similarity, they have single sign-on, but all the rest are disconnected, no? different identities for that. So there is still some some technicalities behind putting that in practice from the organization perspective. So if you can tell us how organizations can implement SSO and so how the, the main step, let's say, for yeah, for setting up single sign-on. Yeah, what you described is a common scenario that even a company that's implemented SSO in their environment, there can be a lot of applications which are outside of the system. Either they've been implemented by a team that was unaware of the technology or unaware of the how to do it, or the product developers were, were unaware that people buying it didn't know what to ask for. So there's a, a lot of situations where a company can be have uh, SSO in place for maybe their main applications, but maybe for their own employees or different user groups, such as you know external suppliers, they might really go back to square one where the the users have to log in many, many times. The best way to implement SSO is to pick the most used applications that are used by most of your customers who are probably requesting that today, especially for consumer customers. The most typical situation is that there's a, a main application. It might be a web shop or a, some service portal. It's connected to some other related applications, such as a support portal or documentation system or something. And these two services are used hand in hand and they're used often by most of the users. So you try to work on the principle of bringing in the most used applications that touch the most users sort of in a priority order. SSO isn't something that you would implement across the whole organization and across all applications overnight. It's done as a roadmap project where over the life cycle of different applications, you would plan carefully which applications you're going to switch on for SSO. They might be on-premise applications or cloud services. It's important at the very start to do an inventory of the applications which you're offering to different user groups. Clearly define those different user groups, see authentication they're using already today, and then prioritize how you're going to move them across to a true single sign-on system. It's something that has to be done bit by bit. Some applications may need to wait until a supplier switches on SSO or makes it available for their customers. Some cloud services might charge additional service fees for enabling corporate SSO. Some might already have that today that just not turned on for your organization. It's really good to work with pilot organizations, especially in, in B2B. And these are probably organizations which are already coming to you, already asking, when will you support my corporate login? When will I be able to click through and not have to log in? When will I not have to synchronize my users with your service, for example. Because one of the big advantages of SSO when we're talking about business-to-business use cases is allowing your customers not only to move between their 
applications that you offer, but allow them to use the authentication method which they already have, which is their corporate login. That might be their own SSO system, or typically today it's Azure AD corporate login that they use not only for the, the Windows desktop and cloud services, but you can use it for third-party applications as well. And as the project goes forward and people start to see the benefits, then it becomes a little bit like a tsunami that then you get requests to switch on every application that you have or to have, have a goal to have as many as possible. Mm-hmm. Of course, for some applications which are used by a very small user group for a very specific purpose or very infrequently, the cost and effort of implementing SSO, or even if it's just configuration work, may not be worth the effort or the return. But you'd focus on the high volume, uh, high value applications first. That's definitely a good observation. High volume applications, the most most relevant applications, those are the, the ones to do first, and then gradually all the others. In terms of best practices that you could give us, let's do it from two perspectives. From the end users, and which might be easier. And then you can go deeper into the what are the best practices for organizations. So what would you say to users? Either they're aware or not they're using single sign-on, but to users who are regularly using single sign-on. Yeah, so for end users, these are the untrained, for example, citizens or you know, consumer users for your, for your services. You have to make it as easy as possible and as simple as possible and use the language that the users understand. So best practices there are to avoid any of the, the technical terms which are not understandable to begin with, but to make it a very simple and easy process for the user to, for example, register an account, approve terms and conditions, approve attribute consent to allow their information to be processed, to make it easy for them to adopt strong passwords and have a, a suitable password policy for the for the target service. And then, of course, a way to, or today, it becomes basically standard that you would enabling a two-factor authentication, which is familiar for the target audience, something that they've done before, they know how to use, and something that's appropriate for the for the risk sort of uh, the risk involved in the transaction. You don't want to have to get the user to do some very complex authentication process just to look at their information, but you might want to have a step-up authentication or a stronger two-factor authentication, for example, in conjunction with some high-value transactions such as a bank transfer or termination of an account service. My recommendation for end users is uh, just to remember that it has to be understandable and easy to use and configure or design the system accordingly. And for organizations? For organization, it's really important that the whole process and the, the, the whole project around single sign-on is very, very well documented. It's, it's a core part of security for the applications. It should be regularly reviewed to understand, is it keeping up with the latest threats in the environment? Part of that review is not only the paperwork review of the policies and configurations, but uh, regular automated reviews of logging events, things that happen in the system to trigger evidence of potential attacks or anomalies in, in the processing and to address those swiftly and quickly to make sure that there's no impact on the organization. So it's important that you, you dedicate adequate resources either within the organization or through a partner, not only through the implementation project, but through the ongoing day-to-day running of the system to understand the responsibilities of who is responsible for what and, and who is monitoring and, and actioning those events. 
Of course, for organizations, one of the downsides for single sign-on is that in some ways you put all of your eggs in one basket, that if the, if the single sign-on system fails for one reason or another, it can become a, a single point of failure. It's a risk that could prevent users from, from signing in. It could prevent customers from buying things. It could prevent customers from moving to a new application within their session. So it's important when the system is scoped and systems implemented, that's taken taken into consideration. So it's highly available, works on a high performance, can deal with any sort of attacks from the outside world because it is it becomes, uh, in a sense, a front door for the organization. So not only does it have to be welcoming for the user community and easy to use, but it has to be very well hardened uh, with very strong locks so that you're not the victim of any, any kind of organized attack on the system. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. It's very good that you emphasize this importance of hardening the systems that are, which single sign-on has been built because you put a piece of software and behind there's a lot of infrastructure, servers, everything has to be well secure indeed, even though, yeah, as you see, as we have been talking about this easiness of this function, single sign-on, sounds like a solution that you just switch on and it's ready, but <laughs> it's very good that you emphasize all these security and availability aspects because it's so important. On that topic, the standards, for example, SAML 2 or OpenID Connect, they give you a lot of protection. They have well-defined and reviewed and audited protocols and flows which have been tested and seen the test of time. But even though the specification says something, it's the implementation mm. which has to be examined. So it's very easy for somebody to make a simple mistake which can put either an individual application or the whole system at risk. For example, incorrectly validating a signature or looking at the incorrect audience information or so on. So particularly where any coding is done by an individual team, it's important to have the technical reviews and technical audits and importantly, testing of those solutions. Luckily, especially for OpenID Connect, there's very, very powerful tools for automated testing of implementations, which is a great way to give yourself faith in, in an implementation and to see how it complies with the various risks involved in uh, poor implementation quality. Mm-hmm. Such tools that, for instance, in, especially in the OpenID community, there are, this is, of course, product of several years of I don't know, thousands of organizations contributing to that standard. So, and there has been, of course, evolution of those standards. So seeing also the evolution of the standards behind SSO and what are the functionality that comes along with single sign-on. So what do you see today are trends related to single sign-on? Yeah, I think single sign-on is quite mature in, in terms of how it happened for a generic single sign-on, for example, for web applications, moving between one application and another. What's interesting is a multi-device single sign-on when you're, for example, signing into a set-top box using using your mobile phone or signing into applications across devices where a session will follow you. Today, we're seeing the better understanding and the, the you know commercial release of pass keys so this is the culmination of, of years and years of, of work on standards such as WebAuthn and, and the FIDO, FIDO Alliance standards, which is now finally ripped up into consumer understandable services, which we know as passkeys. And that 
kind of takes the user out of the equation when we're creating, no, there's no longer creating passwords of a pass key. They don't have that risk of creating um, a credential, which is, which is too weak. It's all, in a way, automated and, and, and easy to understand. And I think that's a really exciting thing, something new for users to understand, how to manage their own collection of pass keys, their, their own wallet, and how to, how to keep that safe and be able to recover if they lose or break their device. It has its own challenges, but that's probably the latest, biggest trend. It doesn't mean that you use the same pass key for every service. There's still, uh, you have a different pass key for every service. So it's not like all of the different services are connected in that way. So it's, it's privacy protecting. The related technologies, which I think is a, is a current trend, it's more of an authentication method, which is used through single sign-on systems, is related identity wallets, which are now really starting to, to come into the public use where an organization can issue a credential and assign that credential and the user can be asked to present that at various services and they can present as much or as little information as as they want and the service receiving that information can be sure it's issued by the by the organization that issued it it's really exciting the, the eu identity wallet projects will bring that into the forefront as more and more governments adopt those type of services and we'll see that we've seen that already with for example electronic driver's licenses and mm-hmm. electronic professional credentials so they will spread and uh, it will just make things easier easier i think for the user a lot of time and effort into hiding the complexity of the security beneath it all and making the, the user experience you know friendly and familiar you know using the service logos and, and branding and colors and the analogies to cards that you have and so on so it's a big thing and this might also drive many many single sign-on projects as customers won't know how to ask for single sign-on but they say why can't we mm-hmm. why can't we sign into all of these applications with with a pass key instead of using individual credentials for each service those discussions become a really underlying a discussion of a, a single sign-on setup with uh, pass keys as an authentication method mm-hmm. yeah i'm sure the the user will be pushing the companies or organizations to to deliver single sign-on now that this these technologies, pass keys and and wallets are reaching that usability level that it's ready to be used for the masses. Final question for you, Kit. For all business leaders listening to us now, what is the one actionable idea that they should write on their agendas today? I think for single sign-on, one of the related Technologies is what's called federation. And federation is when you have single sign-on across organizational boundaries. So for example, I could sign in using my UberSecure login to a, to a third-party application where I do work, for example, with other companies. And this federation signing in with your own commercial credentials across organizational boundaries is something that I think a lot of organizations haven't benefited from enough today. That would be Maybe my actionable idea is to look at the B2B applications that you have, look at the time it takes to manage the users in those systems, for those users to get an account, those users to ask for access or audits to be done. How do you check what the company is? Are they still in operation? Does that person still work for the company? A lot of those problems can be solved by implementing cross-organization single sign-on, this federation. And it can be as simple as entering your email address and then 
signing in using the or approving the login using your existing home organization single sign-on or or signing in using uh, for example Azure Active Directory uh, sign-in. And in that way, the target application or target organization gets all of the up-to-date information about the user that they are allowed to get or that they've requested to get. They get evidence that the user has a continued relationship with that organization. And of course, they get single sign-ons. They don't actually have to sign in again. They might just approve the login and get to work. It's got benefits for all parties in the transaction. It's uh, improved security. It improves auditing. It's easier to use. It's convenient. Less hassle, less cleanup, less risk. And uh, I think it's it's not anything new in terms of technology, but it's something that's underutilized and mm-hmm. maybe undervalued. Yeah, I agree with, with that. I think organizations could use more to fulfill the potential of more collaboration between organizations by using these techniques that have been for, for a while, as, as we have been discussing today. Thank you very much, Keith, for joining us today. It's been super interesting to hear more in detail what single sign-on can do for different types of organizations and, of course, ultimately to make our lives and users' lives much easier. So if someone would like to follow this conversation with you, what are the best ways for that? Best way to keep in touch with what I'm doing and what UbiSecure is doing is through our website, ubisecure.com. There you can register for, for various newsletters and so forth. I'm not so active in, in social media in, 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 re- in recent years, but I do have a Twitter handle, at Keith Uber, and through the UbiSecure Twitter, at UbiSecure. We're, uh, we're happy to engage and uh, participate. We share lots of ideas, including this very good podcast and, uh, and related interviews. Our team is also responsible for the IM Academy training program. The IM Academy training program is a way that we share our knowledge with our, our customers, partners, and uh, anybody who is interested in learning more about the nuts and bolts, the policies and, and practices of identity and access management and, and consumer identity and access management. We run that training various times over the year, and that's a great way to have a, a deep dive into into the field. So I welcome you to register for IM Academy, which is also through our, our website at ubisecure.com. Yeah, absolutely. Very welcome to join us in IM Academy. Well, I'll be there if you join us. <laughs> so <laughs> fantastic. Again, thank you very much, Keith, for joining us and all the best. Thanks, Oscar. It's my pleasure. Thanks for listening to this episode of Let's Talk About Digital Identity, produced by Ubisecure. Stay up to date with episode at ubisecure.com slash podcast or join us on Twitter at Ubisecure and use the hashtag LTADI. Until next time, 